Hello, good morning. So we are on uh, this series on First Kings. And, and if you notice, uh, a lot of the other preachers have had like four or five chapters, but I only have one. So I was like, yes. Uh, <laughs> but, but still, uh, I, I agonized over this chapter a lot because if you open your Bibles now to First uh, Kings chapter 19, And if you just glance through the chapter, you will see that it is mostly about Elijah and his encounter with God on Mount Horeb. But then there's a little part at the end, just three verses about the call of Elisha. And I think that's very significant as well. So I'm going to talk about Elijah first, and then I will also talk about Elisha. Okay, so 1 Kings 19 um, starts off with an angry woman. Verse 2. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And then verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now just the previous chapter, uh, there was the big showdown at Mount Carmel. You know, God had given Elijah a great victory. He had stood up against the prophets of Baal and the disloyal people of Israel. He had called down fire from heaven. He had showed them that God is the one true God. And, and this Elijah is the same guy who had such great faith in God. He, he trusted God to use ravens to bring him food. Um, he raised the widow's son from the dead. He embarrassed 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and then he killed all of them. And, and he had such great confidence in God. He stood up against so many evil men, and yet now he crumbles under one evil woman. It's a girl power. Just, just kidding. <laughs> yet, yet this sometimes happens. You know, we have great mountaintop victorious experiences and then they are very often followed by defeats or, or disappointments. And perhaps we had a great church camp, you know, we get all fired up for God and, and we're feeling his power and his presence and, and then you go home and, and you quarrel with your spouse or you quarrel with your kid and and, and, and you just feel like uh, not feeling it anymore, you know. And so it was with Elijah. He had witnessed a great manifestation of God's power, literally on the mountaintop. He trusted God completely. And so he didn't fear um, Ahab. He didn't fear the, the many, many hundreds of prophets of Baal. He didn't fear the people of Israel. But somehow, after his great spiritual victory, Jezebel makes a threat to kill him and, and something in him just broke and, and he was so afraid he, he ran for his life. And it is astounding what one person, one messenger, one little discouragement can do to us, how fearful and, and depressed it makes, it, make, it makes us. And so Elijah reached this point where he wanted to just give up and die. He wanted to go to sleep and, and never wake up. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, where you just say, kill me, God. And uh, there, there was a point in my life where, when, when I really identified with Elijah at this point, and I believe some of us will identify with him as well, a point where you are just so tired of everything. A few years ago, I was, I was working full-time as a teacher. I was a youth lay pastor. Um, I was looking after my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I was pregnant with my second daughter. And I was, I was so tired every day. 
I was I was so stressed. I was so sleep deprived every single day that the minute I opened my eyes in the morning, I just thought, crap, it's another day. Um, and and very often I would be driving to school in the morning, crying in my car, um, but I also try not to cry because it ruins your makeup. And uh, and, and students have no sensitivity; they'll just stare at you and ask you why your eyes are like that. And um, and I remember one day um, I was driving to school, and, and I was so down. I actually thought, if I have an accident now, it would actually be a relief to just lie in hospital and rest. And no one will bother you when you're in hospital, right? No one will say, hey, can you do this? Can you? Um, and, and then I thought, oh, no, no, I can't get in an accident because I'm pregnant. So, shucks. <laughs> and, and I believe some of you will understand what, what, what I'm talking about, um, that you have had or are having a similar experience. And you know, the book of James says, Elijah was a man just like us. And, and I think that here we actually see very clearly that yeah, he's, he's human too. You know, the powerful prophet and man of God also had his fears, his times of depression, his thoughts of, of giving it up and, and just ending it all. And so First Kings 18, the previous chapter, is, is the exciting chapter. It's about the mountaintop victory and the glory of God coming down. But First Kings 19 helps us when, when we are fearful, when we are discouraged we are down, and we are depressed. And we see that our God, the God of Elijah, is the God of the mountaintop experiences, but he's also the God in the valleys with us. He's the God of the great things, the exciting things, but he's also the God of, of our times of, of depression. And we see here how he encourages and restores Elijah. You know, for Elijah to have such a catastrophic reaction from spiritual victory to suicidal depression, it, it has to be a number of reasons, right? It, it, it wouldn't be just one. And, and when we reach that point of breakdown, it, it, it is usually because a number of things have piled up. So we're going to start by looking at the accumulated reasons that led Elijah to this epic breakdown where the great man of God says, kill me. And the first reason is, is really physical. Elijah was just simply physically exhausted. If you look at the previous chapter, chapter 18, verse 46, he had just run from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, which is, I, I looked it up, it is about 29 km. And he had run faster, he had gone ahead of Ahab's horse and chariot. I mean, that's crazy. Like, I run 2 km and I'm done, right? But he had run 29 km faster than a horse and a chariot. And, and he had been hiding uh, for the past few years. You know, he was a wanted man. Ahab was always looking for him. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, he had been praying. He had been fasting. He pr- probably had not much food. And, and so he was just physically worn out. And have you ever noticed that when you are sick or just physically tired, it's so hard to pray. It's, it's so hard to just read your Bible and, you know, connect with God and, and all that when, when you are exhausted when you are ill. And you know, the devil likes to hit us or or tempt us when we are physically down, when we are just physically exhausted. That's what he did with Jesus in the desert, right? When Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, he was tired, the tempter came in. 
And so when we are physically weak and down, the devil comes and puts all these horrid thoughts in, in our minds, you know, like Jezebel is going to get you, you're dead, you're not going to make it, and no one cares, no one will help you, and you can't survive this. Because you see, the devil can't actually harm us because the blood of Jesus protects us, but he can make us very afraid. He can make us fearful. He can scare us into fear and insecurity. And he likes to hit us when we are physically down. And this is what Elijah was. He was physically down. Secondly, it was a mental thing. You know, Elijah had just had a great victory on Mount Carmel. He thought that the tide was turning. The nation was coming back to God. And then with this one messenger, he realized that Jezebel is still the power in the land. You notice how King Ahab, even after witnessing God's power and seeing the, the defeat and the failure of all the false prophets and the false gods, his first response upon seeing his wife was not, hey, woman, you've led us astray. But he said, dear, Elijah killed all your prophets. And Elijah was mentally frustrated because he thought the situation had changed, but now it looks like nothing has changed. And it's like, if we have a great church camp and, and you gain strong convictions and you think like, yes, this is a church on fire and revival is coming. And then you go for prayer meeting and, and nobody's there. And you think, oh, it's so depressing. Or maybe, you, you, you know, you pray and you fast and, 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 and you prepare to invite your friends to an evangelistic service and, and you believe God is going to save them, but, but no one comes. You know, our most vulnerable moments usually come after a great spiritual victory, after that, that mountaintop experience with God. And so Elijah was physically exhausted, he was mentally exhausted, and then most importantly, spiritually. The main cause for his breakdown was actually a spiritual inattention. He had looked away from God. You know, the God who had not failed him at Mount Carmel, the God who had used um, ravens to, to bring him bread and meat, the, the God who had raised the widow's son from the dead, Elijah had somehow forgotten all that. This threat upon his life was coming from an unbelieving, carnal human being who lived a godless life, but it, it somehow just affected him. Because if Elijah had been thinking clearly and realistically, he would have realized and remembered that Jezebel is no match for God. He just saw it in the previous chapter. But he took his eyes off. And it's just like when Peter was walking on the water. As soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at the wind and the waves instead, he became afraid, he stumbled, and he began to sink. And here's the spiritual principle. When we look away from God and when we fix our eyes and our thoughts on others, on our circumstances, on our situations, then we begin to worry and fear. And we become preoccupied with ourselves. You will notice that in 1 Kings 18, um, Elijah's focus was on showing the people that the Lord is God. But here in chapter 19, it's all I. I'm scared for my life. I I'm worried. I want to die. I've had enough. I have been very zealous. I am the only one left. And, and when we are down and depressed, it becomes all about I. And, and that's exactly how I felt when, when I was so exhausted. I just thought, I have so many things to do. I don't know how I'm going to survive. I, I'm so tired. I'm, nobody's helping me. I'm doing this all alone. And, 
and we just leave God out of the picture and we look in instead of looking up. We get wrapped up in ourselves, our problems, our feelings. And here was Elijah full of himself. And you know another thing when you're down and depressed is that you get your facts and figures distorted. Elijah wasn't thinking realistically or clearly. He, he just freaked out, like, Jezebel's going to kill me. But actually, with God's help, he, he had just killed 850 of Jezebel's prophets. And Elijah thought, oh, I'm all alone. I'm the only one left. But we know that in verse 18, God says, no, I've reserved 7,000 who are still loyal. And even before that, um, we see in verse 3 that Elijah had a servant. In verse 3, his servant came with him. Uh, he had at least one other person with him. And it was Elijah himself who told his servant, don't come with me, um, leave me alone. And then he put himself in the middle of the desert where there is obviously no one and it, it's a precise place where no human help would come. And then he sits there and he says, I'm all alone. You know, I've, I, I've worked with some troubled teens before and, and sometimes, you know, you, you talk to them and you try to encourage them and you help them and you spend hours on the phone with them and then they say, nobody talks to me. Right? Or, or like um, you spend a lot of time with them and you know that everybody's trying to help them and encourage them and, and, and then they say, I have no friends. No one cares about me. And we're like, <laughs> you know, when, when we're down and depressed, we, we isolate ourselves. And then we say, we are all alone. We shut ourselves off to every available source of help. And you know, we get our facts distorted and, and we think the situation's hopeless. And we get to that deadly point of self-pity. And the great Charles Swindle wrote in a devotional about this chapter. He says, Elijah got lost in self-pity. Self-pity is a pathetic emotion. It will lie to you, exaggerate, drive you to tears. It will cultivate a victim mentality in your head. And in the worst case scenario, it can bring you to the point of wishing to die, which is exactly where Elijah was. Self-pity mauls its way inside our minds like a beast and claws us to stretch. And that's where Elijah was, physically, mentally, and spiritually defeated. And he was hosting what we call his own little pity party. Well, what was God's response? I think, I think this chapter really shows us God's grace and gentleness and just his wisdom in handling the situation. For a start, God in his mercy did not answer his prayer to die. In fact, Elijah never even died, ever. But the first thing God did was to restore Elijah physically. You know, when we are down, the two, the two things most affected are our sleeping and eating habits, our, our basic needs. You know, we, we either overeat or undereat. We oversleep or undersleep. I usually overeat and undersleep. And, <laughs> and the first thing that God did was not to say anything to him. He didn't rebuke him or, or question him. Um, you know, our gracious and gentle God, he just let him sleep in verse 5. Elijah just went to sleep. And in verse 6, God sent an angel to cook him some bread. I mean, Elijah got to eat some angelic bread. And then he slept again, and then he ate again. And basically, God just allowed him to get some rest and some food, very basic needs. 
the spiritual problem was first tackled physically. Right? He restored Elijah physically um, first, first and foremost. And, and, you know, maybe some of us are, who are feeling like Elijah just need to firstly get some sleep, get some rest, get some food. God got Elijah physically fit before helping him spiritually. He, he restored him physically so that he could make the journey to Mount Horeb. Verse 8 says, strengthened by the food and probably the sleep as well, uh, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb. So the first thing God did was minister to him physically. And then next, God tackled his mental state. You know, God got Elijah to face the real situation with his mind. And actually, the only thing that God says to him is, what are you doing here? You know, he just asked Elijah a question. And he allowed Elijah to talk it out. He allowed him to rant. You know, God can take our ranting and whining and, and complaining. And God allowed him to do that. And then there was the earthquake and the wind and the fire. And, and God was not in any of those I want to read to you from verse 11. It says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And the Lord finally appeared to Elijah in a gentle whisper. And I believe this is God saying, I'm not here to shatter you or, or tear you apart. I'm, I'm not here to blow you away, burn you up, destroy you. I'm not angry with you, waiting to punish you. You know, sometimes when we're feeling down, we, we don't bother to cry out to God because we think, oh, he's probably just angry or annoyed with me because I guess I should have just more strength and more faith, so, so I'm just going to forget it. But God is not like that. He comes to Elijah in a gentle whisper and he says, what are you doing here? And I believe it is not the tone I sometimes use my kids, like, what are you doing here? Right? He just, it was a gentle whisper. What are you doing here? Why are you hiding in a cave, remaining in a pit, isolating yourself from everyone? And in this gentle whisper was God's revelation of his presence. It was the holy and majestic but gentle whisper of God that compelled Elijah to finally get out of his cave and, and face God and come to the presence of the Lord. And I believe God's re revelation was this, that I can come in an earthquake. I mean, I control the wind that can shatter rocks and mountains. I can send mighty fire just like I did on Mount Carmel. But Elijah, right now, I am here for you. And yes, I am mighty creator and all-consuming fire, I am also your gentle and gracious father. And he asks, what are you doing here, my son? And when we have that revelation of our gentle and gracious father, when our minds focus on who God really is, instead of ourselves or other people or our problems, then we can be restored mentally. And finally, there was spiritual revelation for Elijah. You know, God showed him that, yes, he is holy and righteous, and sometimes he is there to judge his people, like when he sent fire on Mount Carmel, but his heart is always still 
for his people, to restore his people to him. And so God tells Elijah, I need you to continue my mission to my people. And God sent him out, not to Jezebel and Ahab again. You know, God doesn't even mention them as if saying, okay, yeah, you, you've had enough. I know you've had enough with, with the wicked queen and, and king. You've taken them on. You've fulfilled that mission. Now I'm going to give you a more doable mission. Go and find others to carry on the job. Go find others and anoint them and challenge them and send them out. Play the role of a mentor now. Anoint Hazael, anoint Jehu, anoint Elisha, and they will fight on our side. And so God restores him spiritually by giving him a reassignment, a spiritual reassignment. And I see this really as, as the tenderness of God. It's kind of like the way Jesus dealt with Peter's denial. You know, Peter must have felt terrible when, when he saw the resurrected Christ and, and he knew Jesus had predicted that he would, he would deny him. Peter said, no, I'll never deny you. And then he eventually denied Jesus three times. And Jesus' response to Peter on that beach in, in John 21 was not condemnation or anger or scolding. Jesus gave him a reassignment. Go feed my sheep. Go feed my lambs. And sometimes we may feel like a failure, but God says, no, I still have an assignment for you. And so God recommissions Elijah. He sends him out again. And God also restores Elijah spiritually by giving him spiritual encouragement. In verse 18, God tells Elijah, he has reserved 7,000 people who are still loyal to him. You know, the, the Living Bible translates this verse as, and incidentally, there are 7,000 men in Israel who have never bowed to Baal nor kissed him. It's like God saying, by the way, Elijah, you got your facts wrong. Contrary to what you think, you are not the only one. You know, you think you are the only one fighting, but hey, I've always been in charge. I've got it covered. There are at least 6,999 other people on our side. And you have family. You are not alone. You know, to be honest, there are, there are times when, when I get discouraged and, and I slip into self-pity and, and I think like, oh, I'm the only one fighting for the youth in our church and, and all that. And, and, and once my, my mom just told me straight in my face, Deaconess Linda style, she said, you are not alone. Never think you are alone. That is a lie from the devil. Amen, mother. And you know, one of the problems when we are depressed and down is that we think we are the only one struggling. We think we are the only one. We are, we're all alone. And next time you feel alone, just go to God and ask him, how many are out there struggling just like me? And I believe God will show you. He'll show you the, the many more. Because he knows them all. He knows all these people who are struggling as well. He has the big picture. So never think you're alone. You have, you have friends, you have family, you have the body of Christ rooting for you. And we're, we're all on the same side. And so God's final spiritual encouragement for Elijah was to give him a partner and a successor in Elisha. And God was showing him, Elijah, you will never be alone ever again. I'm giving you someone with a name so ridiculously similar to yours. And if the 7,000 people was not enough encouragement for Elijah, the response of Elisha would show him that there is hope for the next generation, that the work and ministry of the Lord can and will continue. You know, I believe God at this point 
he encouraged Elijah by telling him and showing him that his heart has always been for Israel. God is saying, I'm completely committed to my people and I'm completely in control. There's no need for you, Elijah, to bear this burden of restoring Israel to me. Look at how many people I've reserved who have not turned away. And look at the next generation leader I'm giving you in Elisha. God has been in control the whole time. God has been raising and reserving people this whole time while Elijah thought he was alone. And so God restored Elijah physically, mentally, and spiritually. But you know, I believe that God restores us and pulls us out of our pit and and our caves, not just for our own sake, not just so that we will be happy and and, and, and well and, and all. He restores us for the sake of His name and His glory and His kingdom. Because just as we see God completely committed to Israel, today God is completely committed to building His church and His kingdom. And He is always raising and reserving people for His namesake. And and I believe that God's restoration of Elijah was ultimately for him to continue bringing glory to God. You see, Elijah had a great victory at Mount Horeb, but he actually had another assignment following that. It was a greater assignment. And the greater the assignment, the greater the attack. And that's why he was struck at this point by such a, a disastrous breakdown. You see, Elijah's next assignment was to go throw his mantle, his cloak over Elisha. He was supposed to hand over his ministry. He was supposed to pass it on to the next generation prophet. And when the mantle for a generation is at stake, the spirit of Jezebel will attack it because the devil always tries to sabotage the continuation of the work of God. You know, today is Youth Sunday. In church, of course, I'm going to talk about passing on the mantle to the next generation. And young people here, I want you to think about receiving that mantle. Elisha shows us an exemplary response on receiving the mantle. But you know, I don't want us to too quickly categorize ourselves into young and old. And I believe the young does not just refer to teenagers. I'm 33 and I believe I'm still young. And if we just think about our church, I mean, um, more than half of the elders in the diaconate, they are in their 50s and the 60s. And so even if you are in your 40s or your 30s or 20s, perhaps it's time for you to receive the mantle of leadership and ministry in our church or even in your family or, or in your workplace to carry on the work of the kingdom. And in fact, every single one of us disciples of Christ, when Jesus left the earth and he ascended to heaven, he threw his mantle on us by giving us his Holy Spirit. He said, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And in John 14, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus left. He sent us the Holy Spirit that we would do even greater things than he did. And he did some pretty great things. And so Elijah threw the mantle on Elisha. And we know that Elisha went on to do greater things than Elijah. 
his, his ministry was twice as long as Elijah. He performed twice the number of miracles Elijah did. And so some of us, we need to hand over the mantle to the next generation so that greater things can take place for the glory of the kingdom of God. And some of us need to receive that mantle so that greater things can take place for the glory of God's kingdom. And so we started by looking at the restoration of Elijah. And I want to now talk about the response of Elisha. And, and there are three things that I want to point out about Elisha's response to the call of God that I believe we can all learn from. And the first is this. If you look at your Bibles, Elisha was actually working when God called him. Right? He was plowing. And, and he wasn't doing a particularly uh, glamorous job or, or some significant or, or cool thing. He was, he was plowing oxen. Right? It was an ordinary, mundane job. In fact, it was kind of smelly, uh, standing behind oxen all day, watching their backsides. It was tedious, steady, but you know, smelly work. And actually, nothing much in Scripture tells us about Elisha's credentials or experience, why God picked him. He was just a guy plowing in, in the field. And he probably had no idea what was coming up. He was just doing his regular job, very similar to David, you know, who was just tending the sheep as he always did, tedious, mundane, regular work. And the prophet Samuel came to anoint him as the next king of Israel. And so Elisha was actually working when God called him. He wasn't just waiting around for the call of God. He wasn't sitting around talking or, or blogging about ministry and service. He wasn't just making comments or, or posting Facebook articles on church and Christianity. And He was actually just working. He was doing his regular work. And I believe that if we want to fulfill the call of God, we, let's not be a people who just sit around and, and, and do nothing because we are waiting for some great call of God upon our lives. Let's not say like, okay, God, when I, when I really feel called to something, then I'll serve you, but I don't really feel called at this point of time. Now, some of us, we may look at all the different ministries in church and, 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 and we're like, oh, they're not really my calling. But you know, plowing was not Elijah's calling. It, you know, it wasn't his ultimate spiritual gift or destiny, but he was doing it anyway. And like David, he was being faithful in his regular, mundane, daily assignment. And that was when God called him to something greater. And I believe that God tends to work with people who are already working. And, and don't get me wrong, this is not about salvation or, or, or earning God's approval. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, we, we, we read that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Right? We're not saved by works. But verse 10 goes on to say we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we are saved not by works, but we are saved for good works. And then Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And this is how God gets the glory when the people of God do the work that they are put on earth to do. And so whether our daily and regular work involves you know, being salt and light in our workplaces every day, even when our work gets boring or tedious, or, or if, if our work involves serving in church faithfully, even if it's a you know, non-glamorous and, 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 and mundane role, 
or maybe our work just involves showing godliness as a parent to our kids or as a kid to our parents in, in our normal everyday lives, just doing good works in, in our normal everyday situations. If we want to fulfill the call of God in our lives, we have to start by plowing and start by working, by doing our regular work, even if it's mundane or not too exciting. And so Elijah was, Elisha was plowing, he was working, and God called him. And the second thing about Elisha's response is that when God called, Elisha showed full commitment. Right? Firstly, Elisha responded immediately. When the cloak was thrown on him, verse 20, Elisha left his oxen and he ran. He ran after Elijah. It was instant obedience. He was eager. He was excited. It's like when Jesus called the disciples in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus called Matt, uh, Peter and Andrew, he said, come follow me. We read that at once they left their nets and they followed him. Then he called John and James and immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. And again, all four of them were just doing their regular work. They were just doing their regular fishing jobs, casting, preparing nets when Jesus called them. And when Jesus called, the disciples just beheld his beauty and just immediately dropped everything to follow him. And when Elijah put that cloak on, Elisha just felt the weight of glory from the mantle and dropped everything immediately to run after Elijah and follow him. It was an immediate response. You know, some of us spend a long time considering many things when we think about serving Jesus. We think, will it take up too much of my time? Will I be too busy or tired? Do I feel called? And, and we take a long time to think about it and pray about it. And, and not that it's wrong to think and pray about it. But you know, when, when we were kids, my, my mother would always tell us, delayed obedience is disobedience. Go clean your room now. <laughs> right? And, uh, and, you know, do we respond to God with Elisha's eagerness, excitement, immediacy? Or do we hesitate and, and drag our feet and say, oh, fine, God, if, if you really need me to do this, then, then I'll do this. No, I, I always tell my youth leaders that, that serving is a, is a privilege. There is no higher calling. There's no greater honor, Lord. I live to worship you and serve you. And when we serve, we get to co-labor with the creator of the universe in his work of seeing humanity restored to him and glorifying his name. There is no greater privilege It is not a chore or obligation to serve. It is an honor. And Elisha understood that. When God called, he responded immediately and he responded enthusiastically. And the other thing that Elisha did that demonstrated his total commitment was that he burned his plows and he killed his oxen. He did not keep his options open. This is literally no turning back. He was all in. You know, we we live in an age and culture where commitment it's not a very cool or, or hip concept. Nowadays, it's, it's very rare to hear of people who, for example, stay in a job for like 20, 30 years. Even in relationships, people don't want to commit. You know, they just, maybe they just cohabit or they get married, they change their mind, they get divorced. And, and even in church, I'm sure we've heard of the phenomenon of church hopping or church shopping. And, and you know, even on a smaller scale, daily basis, you know, I... I hate it when, and I'm sorry, it's always the young people who are guilty of this. Okay, I'll ask them, hey, are you free on this date? Like for, you know, a meeting or for dinner or for training or whatever. And they'll say, "Mm, should be. 
And I'm like, well, what does that mean? I mean, are you free or not? That you just BS and you know me, no, right? Uh, so I said, oh, what, what do you have on? Um, nothing at the moment. So you can make it? Uh, should be lah. I let you know. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> and or or or, or I'll say, like, hey, I coming for a prayer meeting tomorrow. And they'll say, uh, if I can wake up. Set an alarm. <laughs> you know, the worst, the worst is when they say, uh, if I'm there, I'm there. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> and you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that we must jump into commitment all the time. And I, and I guess it's okay sometimes to keep your options open. You know, you're deciding what to eat for dinner or something like that. But in some situations, you have to make a proper, total commitment. It's like like, like when I said my wedding vows. Can you imagine if I said I should be able to commit to you long term? But we'll see how. <laughs> right? When I said yes to my husband. I was saying no to everyone and anyone else forever and ever. And it's the same with following Jesus. It means cutting off all other options. No plan B. No turning back. And Elisha did not keep his options open. He made very sure he would never be tempted to go back to the farm. And so his burning of the plows showed the strength of his conviction. He was totally serious in following the call of God. You know, salvation costs us nothing, but discipleship will cost us everything. And when we say we want to be a follower of Jesus, he invites us to a, a deeper surrender. And Elisha burning his plows, killing his oxen, kissing his parents goodbye, that is a picture of surrender. This was Elisha saying, God, I'll give up everything to follow you. Not just lay it aside temporarily, but totally give it up. I surrender all. I choose you above every other thing. And for us to surrender and answer the call of being a true follower of Christ, perhaps there are some things that we have to say goodbye to. Perhaps there are some relationships that we have to, to leave, habits that we have to stop, temptations that we have to cut off, some bridges that we have to burn in order to walk over the other bridges that will take you to your destiny and your calling. Because you can't stay where you are holding on to your past, your oxen, your plows, if you want to lay hold of your future. And perhaps some of us are not stepping into God's purpose and calling on your life because we are not willing to kiss some things goodbye. And you know, sometimes the things that we need to burn or kiss goodbye to are, are not bad things in themselves. There's nothing evil about plows or oxen or father and mother, but they are good things that would have kept Elisha from the greater things of God. And many of us don't get to greater because we don't leave good enough behind. You know, life may be good now, may be doing okay, but many of us stay in spiritual mediocrity because we haven't or we don't want to burn some plows. And so what do we need to get rid of, of in our lives today to fulfill the call of God? Perhaps it's time to burn some plows, barbecue the cows, kiss some people, kiss some things goodbye. And the final thing that strikes me about Elisha's response is that Elisha started off as a servant. In verse 21, it says, he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. He didn't seem to mind it that for the next 78 years, he would just be Elijah's attendant. He was probably just fetching water, making his bed, cooking his meals, you know, very menial and unspiritual 
task, no preaching, no ministry, no miracles, just attending to Elijah. And of course, we know that Elisha got the double portion of anointing and he did twice the number of miracles as Elijah. But at this point, when he was burning the plows, Elisha does not know all that. He, he didn't actually know the great destiny he was saying yes to. His goal at that point was just to be a servant and a follower. And he started out with years of menial work and obscurity before God used him for ministry. And you know, it, it was the same with Jesus. He was born in obscurity in a stable. And he spent years and, and years doing menial work as a carpenter before he began his ministry, his miracles, his preaching. Jesus was just humbly serving and doing what he was assigned to do until the time came for his ministry to begin. And are we willing to similarly just be a servant, to serve wherever is necessary, even if it's menial or not very spiritual or exciting or glamorous tasks, like maybe helping with the, the PA, serving the children cool, there are needs in our church. Are we willing to just serve? I'm going to end soon and get the worship team up. And I just want to end by sharing with you, with you a, a bit of my journey. You know, I, I'm, I'm the youth pastor now. And I started serving in, in the youth ministry slightly more than 10 years ago. And when I started serving, I, I had just returned from my overseas studies. Um, I thought I should serve somewhere in church just to get reconnected and settled. And so when I first started off in the youth ministry, I took a group of set one girls. And, and it wasn't great. I don't think I really connected with them super well or anything. I, I don't think I was a great CGL. Um, yeah, and, and I, was, I was working as a teacher. And I always thought that I would do that for the rest of my life. Um, at no point, at no point did I ever think I would be, be the youth pastor or a pastor. So, I, so I, just, I just started serving in the youth ministry. And, and then a few years later, Adrian, the, the previous youth pastor, he asked me to, to try preaching. And I'm the kind who just says yes without thinking too much. Um, so, so I tried it, and it was terrible. It's a terrible sermon. I think it lasted like 15 minutes, and I had like seven or eight points. Clearly, I'm not much better now because the sermon has six points. Okay, anyway. Um, you know, I, I never thought I would preach, uh, ever. It just it never crossed my mind. Um, but, but over the years, um, from that crappy sermon, um, I think God has grown me to at least preach a little bit better now. Uh, from being you know, like a lousy CGL, God has allowed me to become the youth pastor. And just o- along the way, it just, He's just provided me with all these opportunities to, to, to serve and, and witness His work and just be a part of His work. And, and when I look back, I realize that even though my life didn't turn out the way I, I expected, God has really shown me greater things. He, he's shown me more of His power, His glory, His kingdom, and, and what He can do with like a lousy little life like mine. And you know, even though obedience and following Jesus comes at a cost, it also comes with great rewards. You, you see the greater things that God has in store for you. And, and I share this with you not, not to boast or to say that being a pastor or a preacher is the ultimate goal because it is not. But I share this with you to say that when we keep just saying yes to God, every time He calls, we just say yes. He will take us on His journey to fulfill 
his calling upon our lives. Even though we don't really know like what, what we're what really we're saying yes to or what's to come. And and it may involve years of obscurity or just menial, tedious work. And and it will probably cost you. I, I've definitely felt the cost of serving sometimes. But he will really bring us to that place of greater things. You know, Elisha responded immediately. He surrendered everything. And then he was willing to start off as just a mere servant. What a great response to the call of God. And I don't know what God is calling you to today. Maybe it's to start serving somewhere, a particular ministry. Maybe it's a call to deeper discipleship. Maybe it's a call to taking Him more seriously in your life. Maybe it's a call to increase faithfulness or trust or or purity. Or maybe it's a call to mentor the next generation, throw the mantle to them. Or maybe it's a call to receive that mantle of leadership from the previous faithful generation. Whatever it is, will we respond like Elisha? Will we respond with eagerness to God, with full commitment and in humility? I'm going to invite you all to stand and we're going to sing a song. And as we sing this, may we truly mean these words. You know, Lord, I give you my heart, my soul, my life. I live for you alone. Lord, have your way in me, whatever you're calling me to. This is my desire to walk on you, Lord, with all my heart, with I worship you. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
calling you to respond to his call on your life and you want to say God I will burn those plows and kill those oxen and follow you no matter what no turning back I will respond to your call just as Elisha did eagerness obedience with humility and if that is you as we continue to worship, may I invite you to come to the front, to the altar, and receive prayer, and receive anointing. And let's just respond to God today. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul. is also open for anyone who needs healing from the Lord. Perhaps just like Elijah, you need physical, mental, or spiritual restoration and healing. And if that is you, our good and gracious and gentle Father is, is here for you. He knows your situation and He's completely in charge. And so we won't have our usual healing prayer service this Wednesday, but elders and leaders will pray for people today and so if anyone needs healing or if you want to stand in proxy for someone else whom you know needs healing 
I'm going to invite you to come to the front as well. in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are our good Father. We thank you that you are a God who is committed to each of us. That God, you are the God of the mountaintop experiences, but also the God of the valleys. God, you are a great God you're a powerful God, but you're also a gentle God. And so, Father, as we, as we look to you, God, would you teach us always to respond to you with obedience, with passion, with a heart of humility that decides to follow you all the days of our lives, no turning back. And Holy Spirit, we say, have your way in each of our lives today. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Service is now over.